This week on FX Guide TV. We look at the use of Houdini from SideFX software in games, especially in its use in procedural applications, and explore the wild new crazy world of emerging tech at SIDGRAPH Asia 2012. This and more coming up next. This episode of FX Guide TV is brought to you by SideFX software, makers of Houdini, a fast, easier and more productive workflow giving artists more control in their day-to-day work. For more information, visit SideFX.com. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. SIGGRAPH Asia has returned to Singapore where it started five years ago and Mike and John are there. SIGGRAPH Asia is normally about half the size of the US version, but with Singapore home to regional offices of ILM, DNEG and many others, this year is a particularly strong SIGGRAPH Asia, as the guys found out. Well, thanks for that, Angie. And yes, we're sweating our asses off up here in Seagraph Asia. It for a guy from the Northern Hemisphere in winter in Chicago, it's quite an adjustment to make. But it really is a great event, and it gives people from this part of the world a chance to kind of a glimpse into the bigger conference that Seagraph holds in North America. Because it has a lot of the same things, coverage of feature films, new technology, a show floor, as well as uh, scientific papers, which you can see here behind us, for people to submit and give presentations for them. Yeah, and we could have covered a number of different things from the show because they're obviously a huge range of stuff from films like a great presentation Paul Franklin gave from Dark Knight mm-hmm. Rises, which is really good, obviously in the running for the Oscar this year. But what we thought we'd focus on is games. Now, there's been some great papers uh, presented here on games. In particular, there was one on Assassin's Creed 3 that I enjoyed a lot of stuff to do with the fluid sims inside the game in real time. But what we thought we'd do is look at Houdini inside EA Sports. And I'm going to be speaking in a second to Richard from Houdini because Houdini have been providing a bunch of really cool stuff to EA Sports in Florida. And of course you think of Houdini, obviously effects and particle effects, dynamic effects, use in feature films and visual effects and commercials. But it's really gaining some traction in other areas due to the procedural aspects of it. And Chris Rhoda, who's a CG supervisor at EA Sports in Florida, actually comes from a feature film background. But he's actually applying Houdini in a lot of innovative ways to help them build more efficiency into their pipeline. Chris, thanks so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So, one of the aspects about the gaming industry that is particularly a case, I think, with EA is that you are living in a world where the content of your games is related to the world at large, which means that yes. there's a natural need to refresh every season, depending on the sport. It must mean a That's lot right. of assets. That's literally hundreds of thousands of assets that need to be adjusted every year. Now, that could be uh, you know, just simple player heads. Somebody gets a mustache, someone shaves their head, someone gets fat, someone gets thin. And that aside from all the uh, stadium changes that need to be incorporated. One of the nice things, of course, is that the very reason the games are so popular is you're engaging with a fan base but the other flip side of that is they want you to get it right. I mean, yeah. they really are naturally yeah. critical in a, in a positive that, way. Uh, you've got to maintain a certain amount of integrity to each of the games. And actually, uh, even though it's a very large group, we are still catering to an extraordinarily large niche, looking for technical accuracy of the game. Everything down from the width of the face masks of the helmet down to the stripe patterns on the shoes. So the football franchise type games are typical of what we've been discussing, but also you have a lot of success with other sports like golf, like uh, snowboarding, which is mm-hmm. close to my heart. Yeah, it's uh, a sex. 
and each of those have their own requirements. So when we start multiplying that out, as we say, there's an enormous amount of assets. Yes. I wonder if we could talk about how you've, as a company, been looking at sort of proceduralism to help actually maintain that and mm -hmm. uh, embrace the fact that you do, in fact, have to update on a regular basis. With the Houdini Digital Assets, we can structure our data and perform operations on the data and structure it in such a way that we can multiply it and scale it literally thousands of times, but have each piece maintain some kind of unique, unique identity. Plus, when we want to move these assets from one game to another, like suppose we wanted to get uh, our FIFA heads and push them into NHL hockey. Now when you say into that, you mean take those models, update them for the correct character features of the players? Well, no, actually. No? Uh, every individual game is its own unique engine, and so therefore all the assets may not be compatible with each other. So when we move one asset to another, that means we often have to retopologize the entire object or restructure the object so it conforms to the new game environment. Now there are a number of issues here and it's sort of almost like a matrix of them because obviously in one sense you might have a, an engine update that requires a different actual, I don't know, reduction in poly count workflow. Mm -hmm. But in another we've got this idea of just being able to deal with huge numbers of assets and I'm wondering if we could talk there for, because when I talk about proceduralism, the first thing I'm thinking is, oh, well, what you must be talking about is just putting people in the stadium, right? Some kind of instancing with variation, that's a kind of a typical 3D problem. But you're not actually doing that. You're talking actually sort of using Houdini in a data sense, in the manipulating like large data yes. blocks. Yes, uh, traditionally, like, something like Houdini has been used for uh, creating uh, visual effects. But I see it as not necessarily just a, an effects tool, but really as a, an asset conditioner, almost like a stream editor or a data stream editor. And so we're creating structures of data with a digital assets so that these assets can take on a life of their own. These assets can not only be re reproduced you know, or instance thousands of times, like you're saying, but they can take on additional features and characteristics that kind of grow with the game. As you mentioned before, sometimes the lighting model changes, or if we're going to put in a new crowd model, then the crowd needs to be conditioned in a certain way. But we're still going to use those same original assets and basically implement them and kind of append to the original concept of that digital asset and then add that new functionality into the asset without having to recreate it from scratch. Let's hit on a couple of concrete examples and I think there was a really interesting one that you gave to really show how different this is than what someone might expect which is this idea that you might take a Mayer asset, run it through Houdini proceduralizing process but at no point are you animating that or, or like designing it for, for a Houdini pipe, you're actually sending it back into Mayer. In fact, it's, it really is just data set manipulation. The EA Sports pipeline is heavily uh, evolved around the uh, Maya asset scene structure. And so all of our assets need to conform to this uh, scene structure in order to be handled by our pipeline and our runtime. So therefore, we can't deal with converting the whole thing over to Houdini asset structure because then we're just going to be blowing up our pipeline and our runtime and we'd never be able to recuperate. So what we have to do is use Houdini something, uh, use Houdini to kind of act as a asset conditioning package to work in conjunction with Maya or any other package for that matter and leave the assets in their natural environment and so they can maintain their own integrity and then use the Houdini digital asset to kind of now add a little bit of intelligence to the process of like the uh, 
example that I came up before was we had a digital asset basically send MEL scripts over to a Miocene file and let the Miocene file actually perform the operations on the data so that the Houdini never actually had to touch the data. It actually abstracted the whole uh, asset conditioning one level out. Yeah, basically it was using Houdini as almost like a MEL script driver. Yes. Um, but Houdini itself didn't have to touch the assets because yes. uh, it had this extra proceduring. Now, but this is sort of, again, just on what I might think of as like a typical asset, being a player asset or a, or a team logo asset. Um, but what I thought was also interesting is how you're using it for the environments that those assets are playing in. In particular, I wanted to uh, highlight an example you gave with uh, golf courses. Yeah, the golf courses, right. Um, well, our, the way we used to create a golf course, we would take the point cloud data generated by laser scanners of a golf course. They'd take these laser scanners, put them on the golf course, and they'd generate millions of points of data. They'd all collect in this one big point cloud, and it would be a mess to go into. And it would take an artist, oh, about 90 hours in order to convert that cloud data into just one hole. Now you multiply that by 18, so it's 90 hours time 18 is how long it would take to build a golf course. And that authenticity of you bothering to go and laser scan the course is I think one of the hallmarks of EA, right? There's this real respect for the sport as a sport. Oh, sure. That is the real structure of the real golf course. So when you introduce Houdini, that's not to replace doing the scanning. No. That's actually to facilitate what? You know, it's actually to speed up the, the overall process and to kind of help facilitate maintaining that integrity because you, we need to work with that realistic data. And what we have to come up with way is able to process that data faster than doing it by hand and doing it the old traditional way, little bit by little bit, coming up with procedural techniques in order to, gi to digest or to uh, distribute all of this data in a more intelligent fashion to process it much faster. And another example of that is actually getting large point cloud data from uh, satellite stuff for some of the downhill snowboarding. We covered this yes. briefly in FX Guide before, but maybe you mm -hmm. can talk about that because you had a massive explosion in the actual amount of trails that you could uh, yes. succeed in getting. Well, uh, before, uh, before this approach, the most uh, tracks any SSX game had created was 12. And the new, uh, they, they wanted to produce this new version of SSS. They said, this version has to be outstanding. This has to be bigger than anything ever created. And they, uh, they went to uh, their, our digital artist, Caleb Howard, and they said, okay, how are we gonna do this? And he said, okay, well, let's go to the uh, point cloud data you know, created by the satellites. Then we have the actual data structure of the real mountains themselves. You know, why recreate all these mountains when we have this mountain data ready for us? So he created a, a digital asset to actually convert that mega point cloud into actual real mountains. But this is where a little bit of hyper-reality comes in. We are, in order to make the game entertainable and interesting, they know that sometimes these mountains just wouldn't be interesting enough. So he had to include tools to enable a artist or a designer who didn't have any Houdini knowledge to go in and kind of restructure the mountain and add things like cliffs and jumps and drop-offs or other terrain that make the thing more interesting. Too corny to say that you're using Houdini to move mountains quickly, right? Yes, okay. exactly. So, okay. so, so you've got these different levels that you're using this proceduralism at, but I wanted to sort of look forward in the sort of general uh, question to you, I guess, because it seems to me that this idea of introducing a lot more kind of computational power to not replace the authenticity, but rather to basically enhance it, to, mm -hmm. as you said with the golf courses, not not just computer generate courses that are 
maybe not very interesting, but right. better represent and thus produce more. Exactly. Where's that moving forward to? Like, where's the limit of this? Are we? Well, honestly, we see no limit to it, and we see it as uh, you know as being boundless. We're not trying to replace one package with another. We I like to keep our pipelines as being. Uh, platform agnostic, if you will. I want the best tools for the best projects. And if I want someone to design a head, I and it needed to be done sculpted, and done, I, I probably would ask, say, you know, ask an artist, you know, can you get this done maybe in ZBrush and get this for me in a couple days, and then we'll uh, go to work on that. But I want to take that asset for wherever it came from and actually convert it and bake it down and then integrate it into the pipeline so that we can create multiple variations of it and actually condition that for any kind of platform that we want, not just uh, for Xbox or PlayStation, but take into consideration, okay, now we got the, you know, the unlimited uh, social, uh, social media to take care of. There's uh, you know, the iPhone, the tablets, the Android. So now we are integrating those, the, the, the art creative the, the art assets, you know, whatever format or whatever tools the artists want to use, and then using the tools something like Houdini provides to actually condition the assets and repurpose those uh, those assets to where they're going to be for their final destination. Yeah, because I think it's easy to think that a company as successful and as prominent as EA Sports is going to be able to just do whatever it wants. But in fact, we mentioned this sort of matrix of yeah, okay, so there's a lot of assets and then there's a lot of maybe things to do with gaming engines, but then there's just a lot of different platforms you're delivering yes. for now. Mm -hmm. And it's it's literally an annual problem because of this yes. nature of the sports. So I guess you're looking at ways of amplifying almost data manipulation so that the creative just gets to a wider spectrum, but it's got to be a daunting prospect. I mean, just from a production company point of view? Well, we know that uh, because we are dealing with so many assets, we aren't as mobile as somebody who's putting together a little uh, art piece that they can afford to just kind of rechange their philosophy and rechange their pipelines around. So we have to kind of stick with our pipelines and work with our the, whatever available assets we do have. And so we're trying to think of ways of actually working with the assets that we do have in a more intelligent way in order to take advantage of what we do have, make small changes to them, and have huge results res uh, coming out from them. Yeah, we talk about these huge results, but I mean, some of the examples you were giving, things were dropping by a, literally a factor of 10 or 20 yes. times in the amount of, which doesn't mean that you are doing away with it, you know, sort of 90% of your staff. It no. just means that you are literally being able to expand the, the thing. And I guess that's the other thing is that even if you could just maintain where you're at, the expectation of me as a consumer is that every year you're going to up the ante yes. a bit. Well, actually, that's an excellent point, and our perspective is not to replace anyone's job. It's an actual way of creating assets in such a way that's more intelligence. Thus, they can spend less time focusing on just churning out asset, 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 and so they can actually spend more time creating the next big thing the next big feature. When they're spending all their time just grinding away at the assets, that's not really the best use of their time. We want them to use their creativity and their artistic uh, and, uh, ability to find ways of creating new assets in ways that have never been done before to really advance the art. And I guess that's most prevalent with the cycle we see in relationship to consoles because typically a new console comes out <coughs> with a huge generational shift, but we don't see the best games for that console for at least like 
a year or two after that new console's out, yes. and then sort of almost by the time we're about to get out, out of this console, we yeah. have the best games. So I guess in a sense, if you can accelerate that artistic and uh, you know nuanced approach to to gaming, then you're going to get those advances and not have to spend so much time in just worrying about the mechanics underneath. Oh, by all means. It takes time for game companies to understand what are the limits, what are the dependencies of this new platform. And so we really are trying to find ways of getting rid of the nitty-gritty, uh, you know, kind of grind work of creating new assets and focusing more how can we push the hardware to its greatest level. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Let's discuss um, proceduralism in games because I think the common thing that you think of when you think of sort of procedural stuff, especially with um, Houdini, is oh, okay, I'm going to instance a bunch of stuff, um, write some scripts that are going to vary that, mm -hmm. and that's a very sort of literal thing that's very good. But in fact, there's a lot of other things that you can do with Houdini, aren't there? There is, certainly. Um, part of it is in visual effects where uh, it happens often for Houdini with film artists having joined game studios and often those studios are, are pulling that person in because they want to up their game, so to speak, in visual effects, raise the quality. So it starts there. Those advanced users see the possibilities with Houdini as, uh, we like to think of it as a, you know, a, a, a data stream synthesizer. It's this very powerful technology that's able to take in any kind of data and massage it, manipulate it, change it in a very powerful way for games. So sometimes it could be to do with terrain generation, uh, asset creation, uh, prototyping. Is, Houdini's very well suited to, for prototyping because it's, it's almost like a little game engine of its own, but not in real time. It has all of that functionality in it. So companies are using it in different yeah, ways. Yeah, so the thing about Houdini is it does produce a lot of assets that go into game. Though, of course, a lot of those either get reduced down in poly count or get put into, effectively, the libraries or the layering that goes into a game in production, isn't it? That's correct. And yet, I guess I'm really curious to know how SideFX looks at the future in terms of actually getting some of that stuff into either the game engine itself or a bit more um, some of that math and, and science, I guess, into a real-time application. Right. So uh, we're looking to work more closely with uh, game engines so that we can take some of that uh, proceduralism much closer to the real-time performance, the real-time play. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a stage that we haven't arrived at, but it's certainly something that we see as a definite possibility in the future. I guess I, I, I'm pushing on this point because it seems to me of all the 3D companies, you have such a good understanding of being able to manipulate these data sets and, and a manipulation of a data set is a memory uh, impressive way about getting some results as opposed to just producing lots of imagery which of course is a, is a big problem for being able to hit the real-time performance we want and as games are so focused on, on performance being able to harness some of the stuff that you got under the hood would seem like maybe a really interesting path forward for the company. It is, um, and, and certainly it requires some, some R&D attention on our part because those, uh, 
you know, performing at that level and those kind of constraints for, for that hardware is very different than where we've come from on the workstation or the PC side. So, uh, yeah, because I mean, what I'm sensing is that for many years, uh, side effects works with prisms and then obviously with Houdini has been in film and television, but right. there seems to be a growth of it in games. And of course, I'd just be remiss if I wasn't sort of sensing whether there was any more interest from the company in going further into that gaming market. Well, you're, you're a student in, in, in picking that up. Yes, there, there certainly is a, a, an increased interest in our company. And that, that is uh, in large part actually due to our customers who are pulling us in. They're, 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 uh, they're asking us to do more in this area. Um, and it's, it's, as I said earlier, it's, it's come from those film users who have joined the games community who are now spreading spreading the possibilities of how to leverage Houdini's technology in a broader process in the game development field. So as, as we see those opportunities, we want to support them. And there are requirements for the software. Uh, you know, for example, more, more in the way of modeling, where we're going to have to, uh, to tweak our features to be, uh, to be even more conducive to so much of the modeling work that goes, goes into games for train generation and so on. So there's a great example of your willingness to have an open kind of philosophy in the user group last night when someone had used Houdini to drive a robot, which is not a CG robot, it's like an actual robot. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. He uh, saw the Houdini engine as, a, as a, an effective means of communicating, talking to a, a mechanical robot. He built a virtual uh, facsimile in the viewport to control the robot remotely from his computer in a very natural way because he can see exactly what he wants to do with the virtual robot versus some kind of a abstract uh, uh, input devices which might be a you know a key keyboard numbers or something which you'd have to memorize this was very intuitive yeah i mean look i've got to say for me personally as much as i don't want you to in any way walk away from plumes and uh, bullet destruction pipes to see this technology also being used to manipulate large data sets, to manipulate things in the physical real world. Mm. It's sort of like a really exciting kind of expansion of the Houdini universe, it seems. That's right, that's correct. Well, I have to admit, one of my favorite things about Seagraph is the emerging technologies area. It's where they take science, research, and business, put it all together, and come up with wacky ideas. Now, I travel a lot. One of the most annoying things is having some eavesdropper over the shoulder looking at what I'm doing on my computer screen. There's actually some technology here where they put like a dozen more mouse cursors on top of your mouse to obscure the fact of what you're doing. So what we're going to do now is taking a look at emerging technologies. So in the name of science, I'm going to put some crazy stuff on my head and have a bit of fun. So this is really cool. I have an unmanned aerial vehicle that is being controlled by my head movement. And inside this visor, I actually have the feed from a camera on the helicopter so I can actually see what's going. So if I turn around like this, 180 degrees, I'm actually going to see the back of my head as opposed to actually seeing what I'm filming. So it's actually really cool. What's amazing is you walk, the aerial vehicle actually goes with you, and I can see that I'm actually getting closer and closer to this person. So it's actually pretty cool what you can do with this. Of course, one of the main drawbacks is that you actually can't see where you're walking when you're wearing this because you're actually seeing the helmet view. So it can be quite dangerous. 
Well, I'm here at the booth for Sound Perfume, which is the idea, as the tagline says, emit your own sound and personal smell. Well, I thought I did that already, but this is a really kind of interesting technology. And why it's interesting is the idea behind it is that we have such strong memories and impact from both sound and smell. For instance, I remember my first trip back to France 20 years after I was first there when I was three years old. And I swear I remember the smell of baguettes. And the idea behind these glasses is that each person has both their own sound associated with them and their own perfume or smell. So inside these uh, attractive goggles, if you've got you know, the Google glasses bad, check out these. But the idea behind them is, is uh, eight preset perfumes as well as eight preset sounds. And you have actually an application that runs on your mobile phone, you know, iOS or Android, We actually preset your smell and sound. So if you come into contact with someone else who's actually wearing these goggles, they'll actually smell and hear your sound. Uh, so anyway, kind of an interesting thing, uh, interesting use of technology to play on strong emotional moments, I guess. But again, uh, not the most fashionable of, of glasses, I have to say. But if everyone's wearing them, I guess it's all right. Well, I gotta say, John, we obviously normally do emerging tech. It's sometimes fun and sometimes stupid. But the one that was really intriguing for me is that one with the numbers that you were yeah. talking about. Because looking at it, I thought it's the daftest idea in history. And the second I myself started moving with my finger, and it's sort of really impossible to tell from the video, but when you are yourself driving it, you immediately know which is your cursor. And it makes perfect sense, yet looking over the shoulder of somebody else, it looks incomprehensible to man. Yeah, really interesting stuff and just a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's fun to go and see what crazy ideas are come up in various uh, facilities and a lot of them from uh, Japan and Tokyo. So some really wacky ones I did ones think you were going to decapitate that poor girl with that <laughs> helicopter. Exactly. Well, man, it's been a lot of fun and, you know, Mr. Facial here. here. Okay, now I just want to say <laughs> this. Okay, we were raising money. for uh, Mercury. No, we were raising money for uh, cancer research, the Movember thing, and I want to thank you guys because a lot of people donated to uh, this particular cancer thing and we raised over $1,000 for cancer research, so thank you very much for those that donated. Yeah. I will shave it off now. No, it really is a great uh, great cause and sometimes overlooked in the broader scopes of cancer, so good, good job in, in raising that money. I mean, really, Admiral, thanks guys for, for supporting him and the research. It's your turn next year. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> you haven't seen me. Anyway, that's it from <laughs> Singapore and Seagraph Asia 2012. Let's head back to Sydney and Angie. Now, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can at FX Guide News. Or on Facebook, just go to facebook.com slash fxguide, where we not only post FX Guide, but also FX PhD news and updates. Well, until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.